the truth and the life Bible study. Now, in lesson six, we looked at Israel's exodus out of Egypt, the, the Old Testament, or I'm sorry, the New Testament pattern in the Old Testament, and God delivered the land of Israel through the Red Sea, and the Bible says that God's people walk through on dry ground, and that the Red Sea, when the Egyptian army came in after them, that God washed away the nation of sin at that time, and the Bible says there remained not so much as one of them. And then God goes to take his people on this journey toward their land of promise, and he gives them the law of Moses, which was 613 commandments. He gave them details on how to build a tabernacle, his plan for their salvation in the wilderness, and he gave them a detailed step-by-step -step plan on that tabernacle. And one of the pieces in that tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant, and behind, it sat behind a veil, which represented the flesh of Christ, and that between the Ark, the wings of the cherubims, is where he met with his, the high priest. The Bible said he communed with that high priest. And only one time a year, the high priest could come into the presence of God, not without blood. And scripture tells us that this all changed when Jesus died on the cross. And the veil that separated humanity from the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant, it was torn. And now we have free entrance into the presence of God Almighty. And so everything about the tabernacle pointed to Jesus Christ and the cross. Now, if you want to listen to that lesson or watch that lesson in depth, just go back and tune into lesson number six. But tonight, we're going right into lesson seven. And if you have any questions about any previous lesson, tonight's lesson, today's lesson, whenever you're watching this, just email us at info at Refuge Church Online. Jesus, thank you so much for everyone who is tuning in either live or at a later date, watching an archived or listening to an archived version of this lesson. God, I just pray that tonight's lesson, it's so important. So I'm praying that hearts and minds would be open and receptive to, to, to really hear and see the truths of your word about your identity. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this lesson is all about who is Jesus? I mean, everyone's probably heard this name at some point in their life, but who is he? Who is Jesus? Well, First, we look at this, this failure of Israel. So God had a place of promise, like so many of us in the Bible, and, and so many people in the Bible, and even us today, the Israelites lacked faith at times. What should have been an 11-day journey from leaving Exodus, leaving the, the nation of Egypt, going to their place of promise, it should have been about an 11-day journey instead because of their disbelief, because of their fa lack of faith, because of murmuring, complaining. That became a 40-year journey before they entered their land of promise. Now, before we enter into the New Testament, it's important you understand the overview of the rest of the Old Testament because time just does not permit me to take us through all of the, the law, the prophets, the writings, the poetic books. Um, but really, a synopsis is that the children of God wanted to be like other people. And so God gave them kings, but then he also gave them prophets and deliverers, people who would come with messages of hope, and God would then call his people to repentance and to change. When they would listen and respond, God would act. He would deliver them. He would keep his covenant, keep his part of the promise. When they would disobey and walk away from God's plans and principles, they would once again find themselves back, crying out to the Lord in bondage and struggling. 
we see a continuous story. It's an unfortunate story, but really we can see our own lives in it because sometimes we go through ups and downs, ebbs and flows in our own walk with God. In Israel, they would serve God and then they would go to the, and they would live from mountaintop to valley, not only literally sometimes, but also figuratively. They would have highs and where they would follow God and then they would have lows where they would walk away from God. And so um, we see this incredible continuous story, but yet in spite of all the ups and downs, God keeps his covenant with them. And, and uh, as a matter of fact, the nation of Israel is the only nation in history to ever have been born again because they were dispersed to the four corners of the earth. And a lot of people would even say the Bible wasn't true because it said that it prophesied that Israel would once again be gathered from the four corners of the earth to be a nation never to be plucked up again. Well, May 15th, 1948, Israel became, becomes the only nation in history to have been dispersed, ended, but then born again and rebirthed in one place. And so uh, we see God keeps his covenant. No matter what the circumstance, he keeps his covenant. And so as we see this Old Testament come to an end, in spite of Israel's disregard for God's covenant, them not keeping their part of the deal, God still makes it clear that he will not cut off communication forever. Because the Old Testament ends with Malachi 3.1. It says, behold, I will send my messenger. He shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, again, that word covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, in addition to Malachi, the prophet Isaiah also prophesied about a coming messenger. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, it says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So after this, Israel lives without a prophetic word or message from God between Old and New Testament for more than 400 years. But now we move into the New Testament and we're introduced to this very messenger that Isaiah and Malachi prophesied about. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 says, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying exactly what they prophesied, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is that which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, Thus the voice of him crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and put it, make his path straight. So John understood he was the fulfillment of the prophetic word given by Isaiah and Malachi. So after 400 years, Israel now once again has a prophet and a preacher back on the scene with words from God to Israel. But this one, this was more than just a message from God, more than just a word from God. This was a, I am preparing the way for God himself. Why? Because humanity needed a savior. The blood of animals would push sin back for a time, but it would, it would just have to be taken care of again the next year. Humanity needed someone to pay the price once and for all. And God knew no animal could ever take care of sin once and for all. He knew there was no human being perfect enough to, to offer himself or herself as a sacrifice. So God says, I'm going to put on flesh. I'm going to take on flesh, become a man, live a sinless life so that I can pay the price as a perfect sacrifice for all of humanity. He loved you and I so much that he went through the agony of the cross so we could have our debt paid for. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him 
should not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice, it does not say he or she cannot perish. It says, because of what Christ did, we should not perish. Jesus Christ paid the price for all of our sin by the blood he gave on the cross, but we still have to apply that blood. Just like Noah, hey, here, here's grace, God's grace. I'm going to destroy the earth with the flood. Noah, do you obey or not? And then he still had to obey and build the boat. Uh, Abraham still had to go and be uh, circumcised in order to be a part of the covenant. Egypt, the Israelites and Egyptians, God warns, hey, you're going to lose your firstborn unless you apply the blood to the door. Now, the blood has been shed by Christ, but we still have to apply it. Well, how do we apply it? We're going to look at this um, because God's grace reached out to, to people, but we have to make a choice as to whether or not, okay, God's grace is reaching out to me. What will I choose to believe? And then what will I do with what I believe? And so God laid out a very specific plan, just like he always has, grace, faith, and obedience. Grace is God robed himself in flesh and died on a cross for our sins. Faith, you either make a choice to believe this or not, in obedience. If we, if we believe what Jesus did, how do we apply it? What do we do now? We're going to look at that specific plan next week. But in this lesson, we have to answer the very important question, probably one of the most theologically debated questions of all time. It started back in the New Testament into the 200s, 300s, all the way to where we are right now in present day. Who is Jesus? Well, right now, depending on your theology and your Christology, your view of Christ, you have an answer to that. But let's look at what Scripture says. The whole Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, all revolves around a Savior. All are revolved around this man, Jesus Christ. He was the reason. He is the reason. We don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. He's the reason that we even have a chance to make it to this place called heaven or into eternal relationship with, with, with God. He is the reason. He makes that possible. He paid the price. But who was he? Who is he? A God, man, angel, a little bit of all three? Who is Jesus? There were prophecies in the Old Testament about a coming Messiah, but then when he comes, the religious leaders, they choose not to believe in him. Why? Well, they wanted somebody to rescue them from Roman rule, and here he comes and preaching all this humility and love and accepting people and turning the other cheek, and he just, that wasn't really what they expected, and so they even put him to death. But take a look. Let's look at scripturally, who is Jesus? Look at the compare and contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Isaiah chapter 7, 14, we have a prophecy. It says, therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Because God always gives signs for covenant and promises. He says, I'm going to give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. Now flip to the New Testament. Matthew 1, 23, it says, behold, a virgin shall be with child. And shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Matthew, the writer, he, he understood that the birth of Christ was the fulfillment of that prophecy. That's why he quotes from Isaiah. But notice, that passage says that that baby born, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, that baby born is God with us. So, Scripture is telling us the baby born was God. The man, Jesus Christ, is God with us here on this earth. 
in bodily form. As we learned at the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle, God can meet with someone in one place, just as he did with the wings of, between the wings of the cherubim. He can meet with someone in one place, but still be God everywhere else. That doesn't mean there's different manifestations or, or, or different uh, 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 people or persons in the Godhead. He can be in one place, but everywhere else present at the same time. Why is this important? Well, because I'm, I'm not here to try to knock or make fun of or belittle any belief systems, denominations, religions, but I do want to address some of these things um, because a lot of people will say that there is a, a triune God or a, a trinity or a co-equal, co-eternal God. Now, they will say that God is uh, one, per, one, one person, one God in three co-equal, co-eternal parts. Um, if you tell someone who says, I'm, I'm Trinitarian, my belief of Christ and God, that you believe in three gods, you're misunderstood. That's not what they say. They say that a Trinitarian person says it is one God in three co-equal, co-eternal parts. Uh, now, here's the thing. They say, well, but what does scripture say? So, Because we want to look at what the Bible says. What, I don't want to trust pastor, pe- priest, deacon, pope, bishop, monk. Let's just look at what the word of God says. Let God interpret his own, his own Christology. And so Isaiah 44, 6, go to the Old Testament. It says, thus saith the Lord, King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Beside me, there is no God. The, old, the God of the Old Testament is saying, I alone am God. There's no one else beside me. Now you flip to the New Testament, last book of the Bible, John the Revelator is having this vision, and he's writing down what God's telling him, saying, showing him in this vision. And he says, I saw him. I fell at his feet as dead. He laid his right hand upon me, speaking of Jesus Christ. And it says, fear not, I am the first and the last. So we see the God of the Old Testament, he said, I'm the first and last. The God, Jesus of the New Testament says the exact same thing. Either one is wrong and the Bible's in error, or that baby born is exactly who he said he was and who scripture says he is. That is God in flesh. Now, look at Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, how many? One Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And this was so, this is called the Shema of Israel. And they were taught, and scripture says in verse 7, Teach it diligently to your children. Shall talk of, uh, of them when they sittest in the house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. God wanted them to know, hey, you need to have an understanding of who I am. And I am one God, one Lord. Teach it to your kids. It goes on, tie it to the frontlets of your eyes. Put bind it upon the, 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 the post of your, your, your fence or your yard. I mean, like, he wants them, he goes out of his way to let them know you got to make sure you know this and your kids know this. He wanted them to know he's one. So take a look at a a popular prophecy on Christmas cards. Sometimes you see this. Isaiah 9, 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name, name, one name, shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah is prophesying about a child, a baby being born. Matthew views that baby Jesus as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah says, I'm going to prophesy about the day that a baby is born, and that baby is the everlasting father, 
and the, the mighty God. That Isaiah was prophesying that that child wasn't like a co-eternal being, that that baby was God. That baby was the everlasting father, one and the same. And so another verse that clearly points that it was God was the, uh, that, that, that Jesus was God manifest in flesh. Look at 1 Timothy 3.16. It says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God, God, the Old Testament God, Jehovah, Yahweh God, the God was manifest in flesh. Justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Paul's writing about this to Timothy. He's writing this letter because he understands the. It's incredible. I mean, here God is taking. He's preaching. He's up speaking to the angels, but then he's preaching among the Gentiles. How did he do both of these? Well, because God can manifest Himself between the wings of the cherubims or in a human body, and He still never ceases to be God everywhere else. Even the devils believe that there's only one God. James writes about this. James 2.19, it says, Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. So, again, if somebody says, Well, all you have to do is just believe and you're saved, well, then the devil's going to be in. The demons are going to be in heaven. Because it says the devils believe and they tremble even. They understand who God is. Well, obviously, that's preposterous. That, that it's not... It, it's more than just belief in order to find and experience salvation. But notice here it says that even the devils believe that there is one God. Look at Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. And I know we're, we're really looking at a lot of scripture because I want you to see in scripture by, for yourself, not just, oh, this is what I believe or my denomination or the church that I teach. No, let's look at scripture will interpret itself. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, it says, there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope. And notice the oneness of God. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're going to talk about that next week. One God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. So whether God's in you in the manifestation of the spirit, whether he created the world, he's walking and dying on a cross, it is all one God. So... Take a, a quick journey, though, through the gospel of John. Now, the book was penned by John, the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. It was most likely the last gospel written after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John had a very high view of Christ, a high Christology. Just That means just a high view of who Christ was in relation to being God. And God, he, he inspired he, inspired, he was inspired by God to help bring clarity on who Jesus was. John did not view Christ only as the Messiah, Son of God. In addition to viewing Jesus as God the Savior, he also viewed Jesus as God the Creator. He looked at Jesus as, hey, you are God. You're not just a Savior to die on a cross, but you are the same God that created the world. Now, this is what the Old Testament, this is why in the Old Testament we see God, he identifies himself as the I am. If you remember in that lesson, when God calls to Moses out of a burning bush that's burning but not being consumed, Exodus 3.14, God, Moses had said, who are you? Who should I say sent me? And God identifies himself as I am that I am. Thus thou shalt say to the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Now you flip to the New Testament, and Jesus Christ makes the same claim 
And John is the one who records this. In John 8, 57, it says, The Jews said to him, speaking of Jesus, Thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Before Abraham was, comma, I am. I am. What did they do? They took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Why did they want to kill Jesus? Because when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, they fully understood the claim that Jesus was making. Jesus was standing in their presence claiming to be God of the Old Testament, claiming to be one and the same, God manifest in flesh. That's why they wanted to kill, them and eventually, kill him and eventually did. Because he, they even said in one passage, you being a man, make yourself to be like God. Which is exactly what Jesus was saying, but they wouldn't have it. And so that's why in John 8, 19, we continue just going through parts of John. So you can see this, this, uh, this un, un, unfold before us. John 8, 19, they said unto him, where is thy father? Jesus answered and said, you neither knew, know me nor my father. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. John 8, 24 and 25 says, I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Then said they unto him, well, who art thou? Could you imagine having this conversation with your friends? Hi, I'm Gary. Okay, well, but who are you? I just told you I'm Gary. Okay, all right. Yeah, if, you, if you'd have known me, you, I mean, that's, that's who I am. I've already told you that. Well, just tell me, who are you? I would think Jesus would lose his patience at times. Like, are you, are you for real right now? Are you asking me the same question again? So they say, who art thou? And Jesus says, even the same that I said to you from the beginning. Now, I know I'm reading into that a little bit. He seems, it almost seems kind of frustrating. Like, okay, I keep having the same conversation. I've been telling you this all along. I am God. My name is Jesus. Now, the Bible doesn't use, a lot of people, they say, well, yeah, but why the Father? It talks about the Father. We got the Father, the Son, the Spirit. So why the Father? Why the Father language? The Bible doesn't use Father language to confuse readers. God was not going, I really want to see how I confuse the future generations of believers. It, it is not also, it's not used to try and establish Trinitarian or co-equal or co-eternal thinking. Again, with all due respect, the word, the term, the concept of Trinity, it's not even in the Bible. Not one single time you will not find the word Trinity, Trinitarian, co-equal, co-eternal. It's not in scripture. It's not there. It was a theory that was developed about 200 years after the time of Christ as people got together and tried to explain how a human being can also be God at the same time, and they came up with theories. And I don't mean that disrespectful. Just look at history. But the, the, the father language, language of the father, father language is something that is used because in ancient Near East culture, in Near East civilization, who your father was meant everything. So you got to understand this history. This is why the Bible records people, even God, addressing people by their name and then son of. Gary, son of. Or you would, you would say the name and son of. 
Bar means son of. So notice when Jesus says Simon, Bar Jonah, that means Simon, son of Jonah. It was, it was just huge in ancient Near East civilization. That's why the Bible has chronologies and, and who begat whom. You know, the parts that we sometimes skip over, the begat, 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 begat. We say, oh, okay, we're going to skip that. That's because that was, that was big in ancient Near East culture. Where did you come from? What's your lineage? And so we see at various points, people were asking Jesus, who's your father? Who's your dad? Who's your father? And, and they, they, they wanted to know. And so they wanted to speak even about Joseph. Joseph was a carpenter. It wasn't really a, a highly reputable occupation. And it wasn't something like, oh, you're a rabbi, but you have, you're the son of a carpenter. They even say that in scripture. Look at Matthew 13, 55. They said, isn't this the carpenter's son? That wasn't a compliment, folks. Isn't this, this guy's trying to teach us? He's a carpenter's son. Isn't his mother's called Mary? His brethren are James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. The father language was always a part of crucial conversations in the Bible. Jesus was not necessarily the one who was trying to push the father language. He was not out to establish some theological agenda of, of the Godhead, and he was just trying to really force the father language. That was being asked to him because it was part of that culture. It was important back then. So he simply was addressing it because people were asking about it constantly. And Jesus knew, I'm more than a carpenter's son. I am the son of God. What does he mean by that? that mean, he means God was the one who put life inside of Mary's body before Mary and Joseph even had a physical relationship. So he said, you know what? It's not me. The, uh, Carpenter Joseph is important, he's, but he's not my dad. My, I am what's born of, uh, what I was born of is of the Holy Ghost. I am, I am part of God. God is my father. And that was not like, oh, there's God the Father and God the Son. When, it, when, when the Bible uses the terminology, the right hand of God, it's not like God, the big father, was sitting up there and he's got little Jesus hanging out on his right hand. And then he looks down and sees a sinful humanity and says, wow, somebody needs to pay the price. I'm not going. And then he kicks little Jesus down out of heaven to go pay the price himself. That's not what happened here. God says, I love humanity. I'm the one who created them. I'm going to take on flesh and dwell in a body and walk among my people so I can have blood to shed on a cross and because I love them so much. But he didn't cease to be God everywhere else because God is a spirit. And so remember that as you look back to the Ark of the Covenant. That's why God says, I can dwell with you between the wings of the cherubims. But he didn't limit himself to that place. He met in that place, but still was God everywhere else. Jesus Christ was 100% God instead of be hanging out between the wings of the cherubim in the Old Testament. Now he's walking among his, his creation in flesh. Why else does he use this, this father language? Well, the greatest teachers in the world, they work from what is known to what is unknown. That's why high school teachers do not say, hey, today, welcome to high school. We are starting trigonometry. No, you start with basic algebra and geometry. Kindergarten teachers do not say, students, find your seats. Now, I want you to read uh, Pilgrim's Progress. You don't read a book to start off with. It is, okay, now we're going to learn that is A. Everyone say A. Let's talk about Andy the ape. Let's talk about Amos. And you start to just learn letters because the greatest teachers work from what is known to unknown. So they start with basics and then go into the, into the deeper things. So Jesus knew my audience understands the father language. 
That's what they get. That's what they understand. They ask about it. It's been ingrained in culture for centuries. So he starts by talking about the Father, by going to what they are accustomed to. And then he moves into who he is. He is simply moving from known to unknown, not to confuse anyone because he tries to make it very, very clear. Look at John 10 as we continue looking through John. John 10, 28, he says, I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father, which gave them me, he was saying, I have authority based on my lineage, based on who my father is, is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. Oh, and just in case you are confused by this language, let me work from known to unknown. I and my father are one. I am my father. How, oh, the Bible is just very hard to understand at times. What is hard to understand about that verse? I and my father are one. And guess what? Next verse, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Today, we can have all these debates about Christology and who Jesus was and co-equal, co-eternal, they understood back then. Jesus Christ was making the claim that I am God. I am the God of the Old Testament. This is why they wanted to and eventually did kill him because he being a man made himself to be God. So that's when Jesus goes on, John 12, 45, it says, he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. How much more clear can he get? He that seeth me, seeth him who sent me. That's why when people today say, it's a divine mystery, who Jesus is, we're just not sure. He, are you kidding me? This is like the most important moment of human history that God loved us so much. He takes on flesh, dies on a cross. He was doing everything in his power to let us know who he was. I am my father one. If you see me, you see him who sent me. He, he's going out of his way to explain this to us. But understanding who Jesus is, it can be a revelatory moment that I pray right now as we're looking at scripture, wherever you are, whenever you're listening to this, wherever you live, that this is powerful for you. Pray about what you're seeing and hearing because I'm showing you scripture and no doubt you could walk away from this and have a revelatory moment about the fact that Jesus Christ is God manifest in flesh and there is only one. But even Jesus' disciples, it took a little bit of time for them to get it. John 14, as we continue in John 14, 7, Jesus says, if you had known me, you should have known my father also. Do you see a theme here? He is going out of his way to try to make this clear. There's no divine mystery here. He says, you should have known my father also. And from henceforth, you know him and have seen him. Meaning, you, you know my father now because you just saw him. I and my father are one, remember? And Philip, one of his own followers, says, Lord, show us the father and it sufficeth us. Could you picture Jesus right now? I mean, we just looked at John like four and eight and 10 and 12 and now we're in John 14 and he gets done saying this and then his own followers look at him and go, all right, cool, that's awesome, Lord, but uh, just show us the father and it sufficeth us. Jesus looks at him and says, have I been so long time with you? Can you not sense him getting frustrated right now? Have I not been so long time with you? And now 
And, and, and hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me has seen the Father. And how saith thou then, show us the Father? I mean, what else can he say? What else can he do? Yeah, but this history points to, I don't, I don't understand the context of what I'm saying. I don't care what history says in this topic. Jesus Christ, the, the word of God that I believe in wholeheartedly, is revealing who Jesus is. I don't care about councils and creeds and leaders and churches and pastors and priests and deacons and popes and bishops. What do they say? I want to know what thus saith the Lord. And so Jesus now dies on the cross and then rises from the dead. He shows up to his followers. We're staying in John. They're afraid. And at that time, one of the disciples, after Jesus shows up, after he resurrects from the dead, he shows the handprints and the nail prints in and, and his hands. And one of them wasn't there. And today, that, that guy, maybe unfortunately, gets called, unfairly, gets called Doubting Thomas. But look at the love Jesus has for Thomas. He goes out of his way to prove himself real to his follower. Look at John 20, verse 26. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, he was there for one purpose, to find Thomas. Loved Thomas so much, he looked past his unbelief, and he went and found him. And he says, Reach hither thy finger, behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. Be not faithless but believing. And Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. No doubt, this was an extremely emotional and powerful moment for Thomas. I don't want to add to the scripture because I'm very conscientious about that. But in this case, you can only imagine the savior he followed died. He, 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 he gets buried. But then all of a sudden, the emotional roller coaster, you're, you're all, all your other friends that followed him got to see him. You didn't. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes out of his way. He's like, come on, Thomas, here. No doubt, he probably hit that ground weeping, crying, huge tears in his eyes as this event transpires. But it ends with Thomas making an amazingly powerful statement when he looks at Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. Now, he did not go, my Lord and my God. And by the way, where's the spirit? He says, my Lord and my God, Jesus was not just his Lord and Savior, but he was also his God. Thomas was making a statement. You're not just my Savior that died on the cross, but you're my God. You're the, you're the Yahweh, the Old Testament God, the creator of the world. You are, I believe, he's making a statement, I believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. How can we see the fullness of God? Scripture tells us it can be done in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our own hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God. How? In the face of Jesus Christ. That's why Colossians 2, 9 says, In him, referring to Jesus, dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead. How? Bodily. In the body of Jesus Christ, we have the fullness, not a part, the fullness of the Godhead. But if Jesus was God, why did he pray? We could talk forever just on this, but I want to at least hit it. People have grappled with this question for ages. This is because Jesus Christ, let's face it, is the most unique human being in all of history. No one else in history. We have people that think they're God sometimes, but that's a whole other story. But we have 
No one else in history has been 100% God and 100% man at the exact same time. Jesus healed the sick and opened blind eyes, but he also experienced hunger and thirst. He commanded the seas to stand still, but then he also bled and died. He was God, but he also prayed. Now, Jesus prayed for a few reasons. Number one is an example to his followers. He says, the Lord's Prayer, he gives us an example. He shows us how to pray. And the other thing is because he took on genuine humanity, he, he, he really in some ways accepted some of the limitations of living in this body, hungering and thirsting and bleeding and dying. And so he showed us how to defeat temptation when it presented itself. Oh, come on, Jesus is God, he can't be tempted. Well, all I can go by is scripture. And Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not a high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. This is what makes my relationship with Jesus Christ even extra special. Every time I'm tempted, I go through something, I know he's been tempted. He has been tempted in all manner and points like we are yet without sin. He even says, let this cup pass me by, but not my will, but thine be done. He shows us how to experience a, a battle when our will goes against the will of God. He shows us those things. Why? Because he was, even though he's God, he took on flesh and he experienced what flesh experiences. But he showed us through prayer, how to push that flesh down and walk in the spirit and live victoriously. That's powerful. But what about Matthew 28, 19? There's a lot of confusion that's caused by this verse. Jesus dies, he rises again in Matthew 8, 28, 19. This is known as the Great Commission, and he's ascending up into heaven. And he's talking to the, the followers who he had been walking with and teaching and training. He handpicked the disciples. He said, go reach the world. He says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Those were some of the last words of Jesus Christ. He was beat, crucified, rises again, and ascending into heaven. And he says this. My question to you is this, after everything he told his followers, everything we read in John, I and my father want to, you've seen me, you've seen the father, do you think that they were confused by this passage in Matthew 28, 19? Did they now go out baptizing everyone in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? We do not see it one time in scripture. They go on, we're going to look at baptism, they go on to baptize people in Jesus' name. Why? Because what is the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? What is the name of the mighty God, the wonderful, the, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the mighty God? The name is Jesus. That's why if I try and write you a check, and you probably may have heard this example, if I write you a million-dollar check, good luck with that, by the way. But if I write in the corner, if I write uh, pastor, teacher, son, husband, father, friend, can you cash the check? Of course you cannot cash the check because those are roles in my life, manifestations of what I do, but my name is Gary. So when I pray and say, Jesus, Heavenly Father, God, you're here, let your spirit be a, I am not, oh, wait, hang on, I'm trying to pray to the different co-equal, co-eternal deities, and I'm trying to, no, this is all one and saying, God, yo, Father, God, you're good, your spirit is here, Lord, I love you. I'm, all, I'm praying to the same God in his different names and manifestations. The only reason there was a human being named Jesus Christ was not to confuse us about who God really is, but only because he came to pay a price that I was supposed to pay. Jesus Christ is God. 
He came in a body, a human body, to have innocent blood to shed on a cross. That's why scripture tells us, Acts 20, 28, it says that, take heed over all the little flock, it says, to feed the church, which, look at the last line, which he hath purchased with his own blood. God is a spirit. He doesn't have blood. When did he have blood to purchase the church? When he took on humanity and God the Father became that baby. And so Jesus did this so that we could come boldly before his throne to receive the grace that we need. Now, next time we get together, we'll look at God's plan. And Jesus dying on the cross is what made the way for the plan to be possible. But in this lesson, I want to end with something extremely powerful. We could talk for many, many lessons on Christ. The Bible, the whole Bible is filled with passages. Even the Psalms, David, there are prophetic words about Christ. But time doesn't permit that. So allow me to end this lesson by reading to you the physical description of crucifixion as offered by a medical doctor. A medical doctor provides a physical description of crucifixion. The cross is placed on the ground, and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionary feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex and movement. The cross is then lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down, with more weight on the nails and the wrists, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode into the brain. The nails in the wrist are putting pressure on the media nerves, and as he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he now places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the bones of his feet. As the arms, fatigue, cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward now to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but it cannot be exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even just a small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from the lacerated back as he moves up and down the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep, crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium now slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. At this point, it's almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump just heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in just small, like, gulps of air. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. Finally, 
he can allow his body to die. All this and more, and the Bible simply records it in Matthew 27. It says, and they crucified him. The Jews in the temple had commanded the Roman soldiers to take the bodies down off the crosses outside the old city walls because they didn't want to desecrate the high holy holidays. They didn't want naked bodies hanging along the roads as they celebrated the Passover. The irony there, huh? So the soldiers came with clubs to break the bones of the legs because then it would hasten their death so they couldn't get oxygen. They did beat upon the two thieves on each side of Jesus and broke them till their body was crushed and they died. But when they came to this central figure, whose visage, the Bible says, was marred more than any man, he was already slumped in death, but that wasn't enough for them. Scripture says in John 19 that one soldier took a spear and pierced his side, and the Bible says, forthwith came there out blood and water. Medical authorities tell us there is no way for blood and water to collect in the pericardium. It's absolutely impossible for it to get there unless the heart ruptures or breaks open. Folks, if that is correct, then the immediate cause of the death of Jesus was that he died of a broken heart for the likes of you and me. 